Our Father, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we turn to your word uh, by the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you please convict us of his truths? Would you more and more make Jesus Christ everything to us uh, so that we might know great joy and, and experience uh, all the love you have for us in him? We ask that you would save those who may not know you and that you would continue to save us who do. Uh, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text today speaks about the kingdom of God and, and likens it to a feast and a banquet. And Jesus is giving this imagery to a bunch of religious people, uh, the majority of whom are not going to be part of that feast, and they are not going to enter into his kingdom. And Jesus is doing this over the same meal from our passage last Sunday, the same meal where Jesus worked on the Sabbath by healing and offending the Pharisees there. This is the same meal where Jesus tells the rest of the guests to stop jockeying for position and grab the seats of honor, to quit being so selfishly ambitious because people who are like that, who love to exalt themselves, are going to be humbled in the end. This is the same meal where Jesus is also critical of the host of that meal by telling him that his guest list is very self-centered because he only invites those who can pay him back when true humility will invite those who cannot. I mean, this is a very, very awkward meal. But this is not because Jesus is socially inept or demonstrating a lack of understanding on how to read the room and take cues from it. This is not because Jesus does not know what he is doing. This is actually because Jesus is showing to us how the kingdom of God is not at all like the kingdoms of this world, and his followers are to live in a completely different way than those who do not know him. The Christian faith is, is utterly transformational. It changes who we are, and it changes who it is and what it is that we live for. And that's what makes all of this very awkward, because people do not naturally want to live like this at all. You actually have to be born again. And this is Jesus appealing to those around the table by showing to them their own hearts. And this is Jesus teaching us as well about the same principles within the kingdom of God because there can be such a thing as being too proud to enter it and having an ego way too wide to fit through the narrow gate that leads to life. We're called to humble ourselves now and wait for God to exalt later. We are to serve and rub shoulders with and invite not only the influential and rich and powerful who can help us achieve higher goals in this world, but we serve and invite those who are poor, crippled, blind, and lame, those who are a little bit more difficult to love because we look forward to a resurrection when all of this will make much more sense in the end because we are the broken ones who Christ sought out himself, quite difficult to love and yet he still loves us, and he serves us. And it is by his grace that we look forward to a resurrection where the humble will be exalted and the exalted ones humbled. But, but it's even after all of this appeal that Jesus makes and, and heart searching that there will be those who can hear all of these words and not take them seriously at all or with any kind of weight, and yet still somehow think that they're going to enter the kingdom of God. This is where we find ourselves mid-meal as Jesus likens the kingdom to a feast and a banquet. We read in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Uh, before we move on in our text... The kingdom of God here is pictured as this great banquet. 
which is yet to come. And with the talk of the resurrection of the just in verse 14, which points towards that coming kingdom, a man at the table actually makes a very true statement that blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's speaking of a reality which is not quite here in its fullness. Now, many of us who love our carbs feel very blessed when we get to eat them. I feel like carbohydrates have been unfairly demonized in today's world. Bread is delicious. But the idea of the kingdom of God being pictured as a feast is something that God himself has been communicating to his people for quite some time. I mean, this is a God who actually commands feasts for Israel so that all the people can come together and celebrate their God and their salvation. I mean, this is a God we serve. He commands us to eat well. Isaiah 25 and verse 6 also speaks about this very coming kingdom. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Salvation is pictured here as one of God's people from all over the nations. And they have all waited for him and that God himself will be close enough to us to wipe away our tears with his very own hands and to make right our suffering and hardships in a world that is antagonistic to him. I mean, every pain you have ever felt, he's going to be close enough to you to take you by the face and make sure that it is that you will weep no more. And he will swallow up death forever. And the image is, is that of a banquet, a feast of the finest things we can think of. Not that heaven is only about food. But that somehow food is, is this pointer to this kind of celebration and satisfaction we are going to experience when all is said and done. And I think that that does include food. But when we think feasts and banquets and wedding celebrations, we think joy and love with the people closest to us. There are many brides and grooms with their family and, and friends in front of them uh, to celebrate their love for each other and worship the God who has brought them together. Uh, and people have traveled all over the world sometimes to come just for that banquet. I mean, I can't think of another time where all the people close to us all share the same meal under the same roof. And the closer you are, the more love that is shared, the more meaningful this banquet can be, where a bride and a groom might say, I don't want this night to ever be over. And in some cultures, weddings aren't even contained in a single evening, but they become this week-long event. The book of Revelation, which we heard this morning, has a similar picture of Jesus Christ returning for his bride. That's the way the Bible describes his love for his church. And it's pictured in Revelation chapter 19 as a marriage supper, that there's something about the love that Christ has for his bride that takes not an evening nor even a week, but somehow it is that it takes an eternity to celebrate this eternal love that really the triune God has enjoyed within himself which is now spilled on to us because we are united to Christ to become one flesh with them. That as sinful as we are, 
being united to Jesus by faith is what makes us able to enjoy this God in ways that our best days here with him are just a mere shadow of what is to come. And this man at the table blurts out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He blurts out an absolutely true statement, but he wrongfully assumes that he will be one who will actually eat that bread and that he will actually be in that kingdom. He is speaking as if he is in. When he doesn't submit himself to Jesus in the here and in the now. And what Jesus and Luke has been showing to us is that many who think they're going to partake will not. And there are many who seem like they are too far gone and on the outskirts who are actually going to be there with God in the end. It's the same thing today. There are a lot of people who speak of heaven presumptuously when perhaps they should not be doing so which is why Jesus does not stop the parable there. He challenges the guests and us as well. We continue in verse 18 where we see the response to this man's banquet invite. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. The reason why people will not finally enter the kingdom, nor partake of that great banquet, is because they don't want to. That as much as the Lord may invite and invite and invite and prepare and prepare and prepare, there will be many who really just aren't looking forward to it and find every excuse to be distracted from it. Now, in this day and age, there are actually two invitations to banquets such as these. The first one would go out and, and function like an RSVP. And then the second one would be the announcement that all those preparations are now ready. And the first one would go out and people would give their response, yes, I want to be at this gala. I want to miss this banquet for the world. And then the host would take that number and begin to make the feast, the wine, select the animals to be the main course, which is why in verse 17, the text says that the servant went to those who had been invited. They had already responded positively to the gracious invitation, and now all they had to do was come. But they don't come. And this is where the parable becomes, uh, begins to become very unrealistic because nobody ever does this. Nobody who gets invited to this kind of event would ever behave in this kind of way. I mean, we just heard Jesus speak in our previous passage in verse 8 about how people shouldn't sit in the best places of honor at these kinds of events because people love to come to these kinds of events, to see and to be seen, to experience and to eat. I mean, to eat a fancy meal, it's not like today. You just go on Yelp and check up and come in restaurants. No, in this era, you only had this kind of quality of food when there was a banquet such as this. And so once you received that first invite, you couldn't wait to hear the second one. The first invite gives to you this grand anticipation that makes you long for the final culmination of all the stuff the host had taken great care to prepare. And to miss it would be utterly ludicrous. And that's exactly the point of this parable. It's utterly ludicrous to miss out on a banquet such as this one, given this kind of host. But why is it that people do miss out? One buys a field, another five yoke of oxen, another just got married. I mean, they all sound polite. They just aren't all that valid. The field, who buys a field without looking at it? 
to say that the field can't wait to be seen again, not even a day, and therefore the banquet must go unattended? It's nonsense. Five oxen, same idea. You don't make such a large purchase like this without seeing the animals in person and watching them pull together. The new wife, bring her to the banquet. I mean, these are not real valid excuses. These are just polite ways of saying no thank you because the real issue at the end of the day is that they don't want to be at that banquet. They don't want to see the host. They don't have time for the gala because there are other things in their lives that are more important to them at this moment. You know, brothers and sisters, there will be many who just have too much going on in their lives, who are just so wrapped up in all that is going on that they are no longer excited for the kingdom of God. I can't give priority to this because of this and that and that and this. And the real reason that underlies all other reasons is simply that they do not care to have Christ or his rule, no matter how polite they try and make it sound. Notice this this talk here is not given at a, a rehab facility where Jesus gives this parable. This is a dining room filled with the most religious and morally upright people the first century had to offer. It's not the obvious kind of sin, the abject sin that is their issue. It's the good things that compete with the very best things. And that's likely gonna be the battle for us here as well in Hawaii Kai. I mean, most of us are not on fentanyl or involved in prostitution or federal crimes or human trafficking. And, and those who are involved in those things, at the very least, they know we're neck deep in evil. But most of us instead are caught up with land and possessions and relationships that keep our hearts in the here and in the now and therefore not in anticipation of what is to come. I gotta hit these milestones. And it just pushes that banquet further and further away in our minds. Or I didn't hit these goals. The economy's suffering. I gotta try and work double to make sure that I do. It has the same effect. Relationships, new ones, romantic ones, non-romantic ones. There are many relationships within each of our lives, especially with those who do not believe what we say that we do. That that community... And even the joy within those friendships can make us dull and drowsy and lower our chins so that we just don't look upward and forward all that much. A lot of the relationships in each of our lives can tend to make that coming gala actually look not all that exciting at all. And I want you to notice that many of the things which kill the soul, they're not inherently bad. They're not wicked things in and of themselves. But they are such that cumulatively, they just push God out into the margins. There's nothing wrong with owning land. I hope you get to own some. Unless that land becomes the apple of our eye. There's nothing wrong with having oxen or owning a car or building a shed. Unless it is that these good things distract us from the very ultimate thing. There's nothing inherently bad with human relationships. God has created us to be relational, just like he is within himself, unless those relationships push your ultimate relationship with Jesus, knock it down that totem pole. Many of the things which kill the soul are not inherently bad at all. But again, there can be this compounding effect and opportunity cost that a lot of them push God into the fringe. Career, hobbies, uh, surf, golf, home improvements, kids' sports, vacations, internet. None of these things are bad all the time. I'm not trying to demonize any of these things. I do mostly all of them. But then we have to ask ourselves honestly if all the distraction can serve 
to make us so easily take our eyes off of what is to come because there will be many moral people who are so wrapped up in what's going on and who therefore just will not give any kind of priority to the kingdom of God because they just don't have the time, really, to be excited about that coming gala. And it sounds polite. It sounds understandable. But the real issue is, the real issue at the end of the day is that they just don't want it, nor do they long for it. What about us? What about you? Do you long for Jesus Christ to return? Do you desire with all your heart for him to wipe away your tears and to hold your face and be gathered to celebrate with all those who were in love with his coming? Do you think about it at all? Do you think about it even one time a day? Or are a bunch of oxen filling your hearts instead? Can you imagine the, when all is said and done, I didn't come to the banquet because I bought some animals? Can you imagine that you will care about the stuff you care about now in a hundred and years from today. The love of Jesus Christ is incomparable. His help, his guidance, his comfort, his mercy, his compassion, his companionship, who calls us his brothers and sisters and even his friends. He gives you grace in your deepest valleys. He opens up the heavens for you. He even gives you himself he gives you confidence in the here and in the now, calm belief in a sovereign rule, no matter what is going on in your life. And there are immeasurable blessings that are yet to come and who beckons us every day to come and enjoy himself. I mean, what is it for you, good and bad, that come in competition with your relationship with Jesus Christ and make it so that you actually wouldn't mind a little bit more time on earth and postpone that coming banquet more and more? And if it wasn't to come for even a few ages, he'd be absolutely fine with it. What are some of these things that you have to say no to so you can more and more say yes to the very best and keep your eyes open in anticipation for what is inevitably going to come because the first invite has already been sent out? For some of us here, are there relationships in your life which hinder you? You know, sometimes it is that our closest relationships do such. And the hardest ones we would have to create distance in are actually the most important ones to do so. Now, now this parable of uh, the people, as ridiculous as this parable would sound in the first century, uh, people really do think that their excuses sound valid. Otherwise, they wouldn't have offered them. And the Pharisees, I mean, one of them pretty much gives a toast here. Blessed are those who will eat in the kingdom of God, eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he isn't even going to taste that bread. He's not going to even be in the kingdom for he's rejected the king himself already. And here's the thing, he doesn't even know it. He assumes he's going to be there. He talks about heaven, reads his Bible, says his prayer without ever asking himself the questions that need to be asked, which is what Jesus is doing for him and for us this morning. Do you want to be with Jesus more than anything? Does his perfect reign and rule sound at all appealing to you? And so it is here that these people at the table, they don't want Jesus. They don't want his kingdom. They simply don't want the bridegroom. And church family, for those who do not long for him and desire with great anticipation this coming kingdom, they are not going to enter into it. And so the reason why people finally not enter the kingdom nor partake of this banquet is because they actually don't really want to. No matter how much the Lord may invite and prepare 
Uh, there are going to be many who just aren't looking forward to it and find an excuse to not even be there. Verse 21, we continue. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There will be those who are invited into the kingdom of God and will not want it. And for whatever reason, excuse will not be there. And yet there will be others who are invited into that kingdom and will. And this is where we've already heard Jesus' consistent teaching over the last several months, if not more, really. And this is where uh, there's still quite a bit of a shock of who that will be in it and who will not be in it, because many who are first shall be last and the last first. This table of Pharisees and Bible scholars who had the most opportunity and the most scriptural memorization and who wore the longest robes and said the most articulate prayers and who are now eating together after worshiping on a Sabbath day with Jesus, the Messiah, right in front of them. I mean, how much more privilege can you get? The ones with the most status and the world as their oyster, they're not in. But the people on the highways, the hedges, those who are furthest away, the ones with nothing to offer, like the poor, crippled, blind, and lame, have nothing to offer. That somehow it is that these ones are not only invited, but these ones are going to be there. And this is where we begin to understand something more and more about the gospel. It is rightful that the host is angry. In some cultures, if you RSV and refuse to come to this great banquet being prepared, that's tantamount of a declaration of war. And refusing Jesus Christ is to be at war with God, uh, with the God who sent him. There is this righteous indignation here. But notice that that anger does not make this host any less generous and any less outgoing or any less desirous of having his house full of those who want to be there. His door is still wide, wide open, and the invitation goes out again to the people who most think should be excluded. I mean, if the standard rule of the world is to invite people to banquets, so one day they're going to invite you to theirs. And when you're there, try and get the best seat of honor and yada, yada, and blah, blah, blah. If that's the standard rule of the self-centered world, this host is simply not following the rules. A blind guy can't pay you back. The crippled, blind, poor, lame, they aren't hosting anything like this in the future. The people way out on the highways and the hedges are there for a reason. These are the people who never get to go to gallows like this one, and even they know it. And the host knows it because he tells the servant, compel people to come in because you're going to have to compel them to have my house filled. They're not going to believe that this invitation is legit because it doesn't make any kind of sense to do something like this. And there's no presumption here. No, well, blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom. No, there's no presumption because these people are thinking, am I even allowed to be close enough to smell that bread? Is this some kind of scam? People like me don't get invited to things like this. Is this some kind of Nigerian prince kind of email invite <laughs> who is offering something that is obviously too good to be true because they know I have no claim on them and they cannot give any repayment of any kind in return. They can hardly believe that this could ever be real. And church family, isn't this 
what it is like when the Spirit convicts us of the truth of the gospel. And by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts of sin. We see ourselves in a more accurate light, broken, blind, lame, and poor. And yet at the very same time, the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts of the love of God for the broken, blind, lame, and poor. That God would bring even us to himself, it seems too good to be true. That God could forgive us even when he knows everything about us. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused him pain? I mean, we literally have to be compelled to believe it because we don't have any claim on him, can give no repayment to him, no presumption at all. We only have to grab Jesus by faith, not by works, because this Savior loves the sinner, and he invites people like us into his home. He invites the many. No one is disqualified except those who don't want to be there. He prepares everything He gifts to us forgiveness, peace with God, justification, sanctification, and eagerness for glorification. He does everything we just need but want it. Now, in this context, the parable is really about the Jewish people, Israel. They had every opportunity, the chosen people. They were given the covenants, the prophets, the word of God, and they have Jesus right in their midst who has already authenticated himself for chapters and chapters in Luke, but they don't want him. I mean, Israel was supposed to be the vehicle by which salvation would go to the world. But Jesus' words here are yet another appeal to them, that when they hear, for I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That's an invitation to come to repentance. And it may be an invitation for some of us as well, if we are also those moral, religious people who are just so wrapped in our own lives that we really don't have time for the kingdom of God. But Jesus sends this invite to others because of their hardness and also because of the largeness of his own heart to fill his home and his banquet with the many because what men meant for evil, God meant for good, that the ends of the earth would be welcomed in and no one will ever be excluded except for those who don't want Jesus and his loving reign and his perfect rule. And as we come to the Lord's table, you can think of Jesus' uh, really his final evening with his disciples before the cross. And he tells them in our own Luke 22, with the bread before him, Jesus promises them, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I mean, that's like the last time Jesus eats with his disciples. What is he pointing them to? It's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Long for that. And with a cup in front of him, he says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What is he doing for his disciples? Don't look here. Look there. There's going to be a gala, a banquet, everything that will make all the wrongs right. I'll be there with you. I will eat and drink with you when the kingdom of God comes and then he gives to us his sinless body offered upon the cross and then he sheds his blood to wash us whiter than the snow to dress us in white to get ready for that event because he promises a feast that will last forever because he will return soon and those who are really his will eat and drink with Jesus Christ and in the now long for him and wait for his coming salvation. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who invites the outcasts. 
you beckon the weak, the poor, the broken ones to yourself. You invite people like us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and you prepare everything for us. All we have to do is come, and I pray, God, that you would give us the faith to come to you. You would give us the faith to help us see things for what they really are. Give us the wisdom and the understanding to number our days, to anticipate Christ's return. Give us the grace we need to say no to things which are a detriment and say yes to things which are not. Father, use this text in our lives. Use your word. Uh, help us come to a point of real, genuine self-introspection and reflection that none of us in this room would be fooled into thinking we will be there if we're not going to be there. But make it by your grace, Lord, and by your spirit, through your word, make it that all of us would be there. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.